0: Um, as I look out, good morning Aspen Chapel community, and as I look out and see your faces, I think of that great song by Sister Sledge, we're family, my brothers, my sisters, and me. And that's a segue into my reading, I've gone a little off script from what Nicholas gave me, uh, and I'm, going, I'm reading what he gave me, but six words have been added to it. And this was written by King Solomon in the 10th century B.C., but Pete Seeger added six words in the 1950s, and it's found in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. It was first recorded by the Limelighters in 1962, which was an Aspen band, and then by the Birds in 1965. It became a number one hit, and it still remains the number one hit with the oldest lyrics. What is it? You got it. To everything, there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to reap, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to laugh, and a time to weep. A time to build up, a time to tear down. A time to dance. A time to mourn, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time of love, and a time of hate, a time of war, and a time of peace, a time you may embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain, a time to lose, a time to rend, a time to sow. A time for love, a time for hate, a time for peace. I swear, it's not too late.
1: <laughs> Thank you, David. That's great. Thank you. That's lovely. Yeah, I don't know why I bother having a message, because they normally have a message, those people that read have their own message. <laughs> anyway, yeah, i um, it's interesting that, isn't it? A time for this, and a time for that. But the key question is, you know, how do you decide when that time is? You know, when, what, what enables you to decide this is a time for peace or this is a time for war, this is a time for embracing, or this is a time to refrain from embracing? And I've always thought that this really is the $64,000 question. You know? And so that I've, we're starting a new series today. And that series uh, is called um, Life Force or Forced Life. You know, do you let go into, when do you let go into the life force or when do you actually make a decision to actually go out and do something? You know, how do you tell when you're supposed to be doing something or when you're supposed to be refraining? I, I just think, you know, that really is it, you know, how you make that decision. We like to sort of have everything together. These lovely flowers by Shelley uh, Franklin again, sort of, sort of, you know, represent that pushing and pulling and not quite knowing what to do. And on your service sheet, does anyone know what this creature is called? It's, it's called a push-me-pull-you. and uh, Or the David, David Franklin said it was actually not called that. It was called a Dulé Lama instead but it's a question for you and really it suggests that pull that we have in our lives you know when do we do something when do we refrain from doing something so I, I'm going to really be talking about this over the next few weeks just to, to, to look at how we do that because I think that really is about how we run our lives you know when do you make that decision to go out and make something happen and when do you allow uh, the universe uh, to happen itself you know that That line from Shakespeare really sums it up. It is to be or not to be. That is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, and if you suffer that, or take arms against the sea of troubles, and by opposing them, end them. That really is the $64,000 question, or maybe it's a million dollar question nowadays with inflation, but I think it's it's that. How much do you make life happen? And how much do you allow life to happen to you? I mean, I'm constantly faced with that in my life. When do you interfere? And when do you not interfere? Well, in terms of making life happen, it's obvious that the answer is that you should most definitely make life happen. Every self-hook help book that you read, that you care to pick up, will tell you that life is what you make it. You know, problems are really just opportunities. You make your own luck. The harder you work, the luckier you get. And a thousand other ways that really we're always told it's down to you what you make of your life. And I think it is to some extent. I think that hard work and dedication, You know, it's obviously the way to get on in life and to sit back and wait for it all to happen to you. You know, most of the time, it'll get you precisely nowhere. However, and I think there is a big however, if you come from a worldview that says that we are not alone in the universe and that there is some sort of design and order in the world and that we are part of that order then what part do we play in, in being a part of that order and relating to that order? I mean, I always use, and I, I won't apologise again, I always use that, that story from Einstein when he arrived in America. I'll do a quick précis of it because I know some, we've all heard it millions of times before. But he arrives in America, Einstein, and uh, the journalist asks him, what is the most important question you can ask about life? what is the most important question you can ask about life? And Einstein answers, he says, the most important question you can ask about life is, is the universe a friendly place or not? Is the universe a friendly place or not? Because if the universe is not a friendly place, then you've got to spend all your resources, all your energy, everything you've got trying to defend yourself against an unfriendly universe. If it's neither friendly or unfriendly, the middle way, then... It doesn't matter what you do. You know, there's nothing, there's no order. It doesn't really matter. So you can do whatever you like. But, and this is the key thing, if the universe is a friendly place, then surely what we have to do is to spend all our energy, all our resources, everything we can, trying to understand how to cooperate with a friendly universe. And that's really the difficulty. How do you cooperate? If the universe, and you have to make that decision first, if the universe is a friendly place, how do you cooperate with that friendly universe? And th- I just suggest that cooperating with the friendly universe, you know, how you do that is the $64,000 question. And that's what, we're, you know, which, that's what everybody's trying to work out. That, that is really what, what the question of life is. How much is it my job to make things happen? And how much do we leave the universe to look after itself? The universe is defined as the whole world, the cosmos, the totality of existing things. That's a good definition of the universe, the totality of existing things. And and as I said before, the word cosmos comes from the Greek word, which means order, an orderly arrangement. So by its very nature... The universe is ordered, and we are part of that universe, and therefore we are subject to that order. But the key question is, how does that affect our lives? And is that natural order going to make our lives naturally ordered? Is that natural, which obviously exists, you know, the stars are up there, we're down here, I'm not exploding into space, you know, those chairs have integrity, we all have our own integrity, you know, there is a natural order, but how much does that order go into our own private lives? And this, this talk of order points further into questions about, you know, notions of God, Notions of divinity. When we talk about order, do we really mean God? And if not, then what sort of order are we talking about? To some extent, our concepts of God are really just ways of trying to explain the natural order that we see in the world. Our concepts of God are are ways that we use to explain the natural order we, we see in it. It's the order that we see first. And then we have thoughts about how that order must have been created. We have thoughts about that. You know, the sun rises and sets every day. The stars are always there. Rocks are hard. Water's wet. We wake up in the morning and we go to sleep at night. You know, there is order. And somehow it's all held together. And we impose on that order ideas about God. The sun God driving his chariot through the sky. That's one notion of God and order. Zeus in Olympus, Ganesh, Jehovah, Allah, they are all concepts of God. From whatever culture we come from, we tell the story of order from our own perspective. From whatever culture we come from, we tell the story of that order from our own perspective. And to that end, I think that religion is really just a cultural interpretation of the natural order. Religion is a cultural interpretation of the natural order, seen from each of our own perspectives. And you, know, you can take that, that's on a macro level, when you, you can explain religions as a cultural interpretation of the, uh, of the natural order. But I think you can take that down to a micro level. You know, our own individual level, whether we're Muslim, Christian, Buddhist or Jew, the truth is that each of us has our own religion. You know, the way we individually interpret the religion that we are born into you know, is the way that we exist. You know, we take these meta-narratives and we spin our own micro-narrative that tells us how the death of our spouse fits into that or our failing health or the existence of war, or not. You know, when this, you know, we we, we create our own narrative within each of us. You know, if you're a Christian, you know, you can't sort of sign it all up as to one. You can sort of create a meta-narrative. But really, when you're living your life day to day, it's your own, you believe this this bit, but you don't believe that bit. And this works for you, and this doesn't work for you. And actually, what happens is you, you create your own idealized, fabricated reality. Your own little religion, we create our own little... I'm not saying this is a bad thing, by the way. I'm just saying that I think this is the way that we run our lives. And you know, when this idealized fabricated reality fails, when it fails to conform to the way that our life is supposed to turn out, if there is a death of a loved one or a loss of health or wealth, we sort of lose our faith. And then we reappraise our worldview and we recreate our world religion in the understanding of what we've done in our lives. We spin our own religion around the religion that we've always been spun and therefore we make sense of the world. We make sense of the order of the cosmos in our own way. Each of us does that. And in that way, we're really making up our own reality. You know, we're deciding what our reality is. And I I come back to that quote from Philip K. Dick again. You know, he said, the guy that wrote Blade Runner, he said that reality is that which continues to exist after you've stopped believing in it. Reality is that which continues to exist after you've stopped believing in it. And to that end, our journey here is to work out what's real and what's made up. And that's the difficulty. You know, what is real? And what's made up? And we tend, you know, we tend to work that out empirically. That's how we do it. We tend to work out what's real and made up empirically by means of observation or experience, rather than theory or pure logic. You know, we 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 do it through our experience. And so the first thing we have to establish in deciding how much is up to us to make the most of our lives, you know when we're trying to decide, you know, the difference between whether it's up to us or a life force, the first thing we have to establish is, is there such a thing as a life force? I know, you know, it really is coming back to basis, but, you know, we've been told it and, you know, lots of spiritual stuff suggests it, you know, but but, but can we rely on, is there such a thing? And I, I think you really have to answer that question. You really have to confront that question when you look at, you know, how you're making decisions in your life you know is there such a thing as a life force and and empirically we have to say yes you know our very aliveness is proof of the existence of a life force you know we we did nothing to bring ourselves into this world into being and yet here we are you know yes our parents had something to do with it however the sheer force of history tells us that something is unfolding you know there is an unfolding in our lives you know Something got you here, something's gonna make you eat lunch later on. You know, there is a, a definite ongoingness that happens in our life. You know, there's an unfoldingness in history. There's the Big Bang, the planets, life, us, you know, there's your order. But God, you know, I think that's another kettle of fish. You know, the existence of that is a different kettle of fish. And the question is really. I think how deep that order runs, you know, how deep does it run, that order? Does it run into our individual lives or not? If it does, if it does run into our experience of life, our day-to-day life, then the order that we are part of is somehow a part of of our own individual consciousness. It comes into our thinking, into our process of living. Somehow it's a part of that too. If it does exist, it's a part of the livingness. It's not just a material disinterested order. You have to make that decision. Is it a material disinterested order, like Einstein's middle way? Or is it an order that we're intimately involved with, that somehow is a part of who we are? That's really key in this discussion. How far does it go? And if it is a part of us, that sort of shifts the emphasis into the nature of love. Because love has a self-giving quality. And it's not impersonal. It suggests that something consciously cares about us in a way that we consciously care about others. That something is involved in us in the way that we can be involved in others. It's a quality of nature. It has a quality of nurture in the nature. There's a quality of nurture in there that we're involved with. So that is the key question. You know, it, does it come into our lives? I mean, they do say that you can't prove that God exists. We came to dangerous territory here. In a you know, they say you can't prove that God, God exists, and I... And here I'm talking about the word loosely. What I mean is that you can't prove whether or not there is intelligent design or not. They say you can't prove whether there's intelligent design or not. A design I'm talking about here that is not uncaring, but one that always manifests as the highest possible good. A design that's uncaring will not always manifest as the highest possible good. But a design that is caring, an intelligent design, will always manifest as the highest possible good. You know, like water flows down a stream, this sort of intelligent design always nourishes, always protects, always moves forward. It is latent potential always expressing the highest possible good. Latent potential, always expressing the highest possible good. That's what we're talking about here. And that is very different from uncaring order. It's different from uncaring order, that whole clock mechanism theory of life. And this is what we're trying to work out. In other words... You know, we're working out whether or not there is a latent love at the center of the universe that is unfolding through the evolution of creation. This is the key question. Is there a latent love at the center of the universe that is unfolding through the evolution of creation and will eventually take us all to a perfection that it is always trying to realize, that it will take the whole of creation, to a a perfection that it's trying to realize. This is what we mean by the nature of God. It is that latent potential unfolding, taking us all to a perfection that it's trying to realize. Everything is perfect and we are part of that perfection. So how do you prove that that exists? People have always struggled and failed to prove that God exists. But I think it's possible. I think you can prove that God exists. And I think how you do it is through quantum mechanics. I think you prove that God exists through quantum mechanics. And and prove to yourself that God exists through quantum mechanics and through, through how that works out. Because you have to get clear about this. You can sort of tentatively believe in God and then dreadful things happen and, you know, your faith is shaken or whatever. But how how can you just really, you know, get to the grips with it? You know, since the Enlightenment, proof has always been something that is measured. You know, it measures what is, and through repeating those measurements demonstrates the efficacy of your theory. That's how, since the Enlightenment, we've, we've done that. The trouble is that, that this intelligent design is not material. If you like to call it God, this is not material. And so it can't be measured. Now, the idea, I think, is that quantum physics came about when they couldn't explain the placing of electrons in various experiments until finally they realised that the thing that was making the difference in the electron, the thing that was making the difference was the presence of the observer. In the experiment, the presence of the observer affected the placing of the electron. That, that's really you know, what that was about. And the very fact of observing something affects the outcome. There's a relationness about the universe that's being talked about within this quantum mechanics. And so when we come to try to prove the existence of God... Or this intelligent design, which is really the starting point as to how, how do I decide when to do something, when not to do something. You know, am I relying on something that's real, or am I just making it up? So when you come to prove the existence, of God, or this intelligent design, when you look at the material side of life, we can prove nothing. But when we include ourselves in the picture, when we are part of the experiment we can focus on a different perspective, which is our own experience. And that has been invalidated before. It's just what's up there. But what I'm suggesting is that through quantum mechanics, our own experience is part of the proof, is part of the experiment itself. And I'd like to suggest that the nearest thing we can come to proving the existence of this intelligent design is our, when our experience tells us something that the material does not when our experience tells us something that the material does not. You know, we can often have an experience of peace or love or bliss or joy in the face of circumstances that actually simply doesn't warrant those, those experiences given what the circumstances are. You know, given we can be in dreadful circumstances, and yet still somehow we can have an experience of peace or love or joy that is not explained by what is going on in our lives. You hear of people in extreme circumstances who nevertheless experience an aspect of peace. And I'd like to suggest that this experience of what I would call unwarranted peace is our proof. The experience of unwarranted peace is our proof. And it's something that many people have touched or in different circumstances of their lives, and it gives them a kind of certainty that doesn't fit the circumstances. It gives them a certainty that doesn't fit the circumstances. The one place that we're touched by the intelligent design, the place where we're touched by the intelligent design, the place where we see it, it's not out there, but it's within. That's where it, we're touched. And you know, it's not a mist that descends on us when it deigns to, but it comes from our centre, from our soul, and gives us a peace that cannot be explained. That thing in the blessing, the peace that passes all understanding. And I'm not talking about a rational being at peace. You know, I'm at peace with the fact that you know, I've lost all my money whatever it is i'm not talking about a rational being at peace i'm referring to something deeper something of our soul that says to us that all will be well when often it looks like all will not be well and i think i think that this is the nearest we can come to knowing that intelligent design type love force does exist but even if we don't have such experiences we're challenged in life to reflect on the natural order and ask how we can cooperate with it in such a way as to manifest wholeness in our life. You know, How do we cooperate with that order to create wholeness in our life? What can we do to bring about the greatest good? If it is an unfolding of the greatest good, how do we decide what is going to bring about the greatest good? Is it something we can think our way into and act upon? Or must we unthink our way into it and allow it to act upon us? That's that's the question I want to be addressing here. Whether you believe in God or not, I don't think is the answer. I don't think it's even the question. Whether you believe in God or not, do you believe in God? It's not the answer. And I don't think it's even the question. The question really is how to be the question is how to be. You know, In the last series that we had here, I looked about the nature of being, and if you missed it, there's a whole podcast series which is available on the website. But in summation, it's the imperative to live it in some sort of a soul consciousness, you know, being aware of ourselves as part of something bigger than ourselves. And I think that is this life force that I'm talking about. So the first step Really, in working out is the acknowledgement of, of its existence and its reality and how that reality manifests in our lives. And that may seem pretty basic, especially in a chapel on a Sunday, and I'm supposed to be preaching about God and Jesus, saying, you know, "Does it exist?" But you know, what is the reality? Most of the time, we go about our lives as if it didn't exist. Yet you know, we might profess to be spiritual and sign up to the interconnectedness of all things. But when it comes to the way that we look after our money, or our house, or our family, or our health, we often assume that there will be no intelligent design unless we put it there ourselves. That's how we live our lives a lot of the time. Assuming that there isn't intelligent design. We plan, we scheme We engineer things to go our way. And all because we don't trust that anyone or anything will do it if we don't. We feel we've got to do it ourselves because no one else is going to look after us. We fundamentally do not trust that life will turn out the way we want it to. And so we have to do it ourselves. And I think that's really how most of us run our lives. I do. You know, when I'm looking after my kids and things like that, I don't think, oh, let's... Think what the intelligent design is going to do about my son. I mean, I don't. Get off that computer. And, you know, I want to get my own way. You know, we might consider you know, letting go on the yoga mat. You know, when we're on the yoga mat, I'm going to let go onto the yoga mat. Or on the meditation cushion, you know, we'll consider letting go there. But the moment we get up from there, we're alerted once more to the need to shape our lives, to have them go our way. And what if the very act of trying to control our lives was the thing that was getting in the way? What if the very act of trying to control our lives was the thing that was getting in the way? That the order that we try to impose on our lives is like weighting the tyre wheel on a car so it can't go straight. It's always turning in that direction because it's like a ball, there's a weight on it. And... Our controlling our lives is often always pushing us in the same direction. We always want to go in a particular direction, and it can't go straight. What if life naturally worked out, and the thing that screwed it up was our attempts to make it go our way? That's the real question. And next week, we're going to look at you know, how we deal with that in the circumstances of our lives, and whether or not, in the long run, you know, we can have any effect on anything. I'm done. I've come to the end of my notes. Good. So let's just uh, pray. Shall we just uh, have a moment just to think about our lives? And prayer really is us opening up and saying, Lord, help me. It's opening up to that intelligent design. And we do meddle so much in our lives. Lord, we just pray that you show us the way forward in our own lives. We pray that you show our leaders the way forward in the way the way the countries come together and the way our country lives its life. We pray that our world may somehow be shown a better way of operating, where the earth can flourish and grow. We pray that you enable us to see that picture. I pray for our valley at this time of holiday, people coming in for the Ideas Festival, those working in the festivals. Pray for those travelling up and down the valley, flying in, driving out. Pray that we may be a place of safety where people can touch this intelligent design in some way or another. I particularly pray for those who are part of our community where who are having difficulty, pray for particularly for Patricia Hill, uh, for Will Welsh. We, pr- we give thanks that Barbara Orchard is now better and no longer needs to be, be on our list. pray for Anne, Holidge, Anne Hodges, Lee Berge, who's uh, Mandy Scott's grandmother, who's not well at the moment. We pray for Tyler and, and Louise, due, uh, and their due date today uh, for Alice Davis's first grandchild, the baby girl. We pray for them, Tyler and Louise. That due date. We pray again for the family of Felbrick Carlberg who died last week. Pray for Sharon Wells and for the Hicks family who are travelling around Europe for a year. Lord we ask your blessing upon us and all these people. In Jesus name. Amen.